Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, new archaeological evidence challenges historical perceptions of the Tamuqua people of North Florida. If you read the documents, they really um, portray them as really intensive and extensive agriculturalists, and what we're finding out is that corn comes really late to them, that our dates on corn suggest that they first start growing corn 1450, 1500 A.D. So that's, you know, 50 years, 100 at the most prior to European contact. So they're just starting out doing it. A radio show called the Saturday Night Bongo Party helped to ease racial tensions in South Florida during the integration of schools. There's a local AM radio station, WSTU. Les Combs was the owner of the place. He allowed a community leader named Walter Oden to put on a radio program called the Saturday Night Bongo Party. And this was heard all over the county and even beyond. We'll follow Central Florida's Zor Neal Hurston into turpentine camps of the 1930s. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Tamuqua tribe was one of the largest groups of Native Americans inhabiting Florida at the time of European contact. New archaeological discoveries are changing our perceptions of the Tamuqua as they cast doubt on some historical records. This year marks the 450th anniversary of first contact between the French Huguenots and the Tamuqua. Dr. Keith Ashley is research coordinator at the University of North Florida. They first arrived on May 1st, 1562. They named the St. John's River the River of May. Uh, that name is kind of preserved today at Mayport at the mouth of the St. John's River. Uh, they were here maybe two days. I think they were here a four, four, total of four days, but two days they were kind of parked out at sea. Uh, then they moved on to uh, South Carolina. Then they returned in 1564 to establish the La Caroline Colony, which was an ill-fated colony that lasted 15 months. Uh, then they were kind of um, removed from the area, area forcefully by the Spanish. The pre-contact Native Americans of North Florida have long been called Tamuqua, but when discussing the Tamuqua who lived at the mouth of the St. John's River, Ashley uses the more specific term, Mokama. We really don't know what the Tamuqua's, what their word for themselves was. We have no idea, so we've actually superimposed the word Tamuqua 
onto them. And Tamuka is really their language. It covers a really broad area, about 19,000 square miles of northern peninsula Florida and southeastern Georgia. But over that vast area, there was a series of dialects of the Tamuka language. And the one that was spoken at the mouth of the St. John's and into kind of southeastern Georgia was the Maritime or Mokama dialect, which does differ from the Agua Salada dialect or the saltwater dialect that was the Saloy, who would have been the St. The uh, St. Augustine area. Because the people who spoke different dialects of Tamuqua also had other distinct cultural differences, Ashley says that using the more specific term Mokama is useful. We're going by dialect as opposed to the broader language because really what we have archaeologically in northeastern Florida is a little different than what we have in Gainesville area, but they're both Tamuqua. So if we use Mokama for the northeast Florida one and Potano for the Gainesville one, it really does create kind of a degree of separation and specificity for them. Contact with Europeans wiped out the Tamuqua-speaking people, including those using the Mokama dialect, but they did leave an archaeological record. Most of what we know, I think, is derived from, at least a popular image, is derived from kind of European parchment, what's been written about them, or some of these engravings. Uh, but archaeology, I think, has really contributed a lot lately. We just haven't really got it out to the public, and that's what we're trying to do to now. Uh, we know that they were uh, aquatic-based, primarily living off estuarine resources. We know archaeologically that they did do some farming, but it's probably not to the scale that the um, documents suggest. The reason that the new archaeological evidence is so important to understanding the Mokama speaking Tamuqua is that the written historical record is minimal, and in some cases its accuracy must be questioned. Sometimes we'll look at a document and it'll say a certain thing, and that's the only document. And then sometimes there may be two or three documents that does strengthen it. But I think one thing we have to be careful with is that if we say there are three different separate uh, documented accounts of a certain thing, that it's not just the latter two parroting the first one. Uh, we need to make sure that they are three separate things. And I think the more accounts that we have dealing with a specific topic, the more that reinforces maybe that is true, what they're saying. Uh, if it's just one-time thing, it's a harder thing to, to verify. Part of the historical record documenting Native Americans in Florida at the time of European contact are the 1591 engravings of Theodore de Bray. Ashley says the problem is that the engravings are based on earlier sources that were possibly not documenting the Tamuqua or even Native people in Florida. Yeah, I think everyone refers to these engravings as Lemoines. In reality, they're not. They're Debray's engravings of Lemoines. And the problem that we have is we have no Lemoines, so we can't see how truly faithful Debray was to those, to those watercolorings. We see great similarities between the Debray engravings of the Tamuqua and the Hanstaden, uh, the Jean de Lery sketches from Brazilian Indians. So there seems to be a lot of similarities suggesting that Debray may have uh, borrowed from you know, existing sketches from elsewhere, from, from not Florida Indians. For centuries, the so-called Lemoyne images have been considered fairly reliable depictions of native Floridians, but no more. Keith Ashley points out some of the problems with the engravings. We see um, uh, an image where they're grilling animals on on a grill, on a wooden grill. And there's really, that's probably correct to some extent, but it just looks exactly like the one we see for the Brazilian. The only difference is we see animals on the Northeast Florida one while we see human body parts on the Tupanamba or the Brazilian one. Um, we see a wall around the community within the Brazilian one. We see a wall around the community in the Native American Northeast Florida one, uh, Tamuquan, but we've never found anything like that. In fact, there is no reference to the Tamuqua having a 
fortified village or a palisade or wall around it. The only reference to that is the caption that's underneath the Debray engraving. DeSoto went through uh, the western Tamuqua area. Doesn't doesn't mention that at all. Others have gone through it. That we just have no mention of that anywhere. So I, I don't think that's that's realistic of the natives of northeastern Florida. One of the myths about the Tamuqua that has endured for centuries is that many of them were seven feet tall. Ashley says this myth may have started with an engraving as well. Usually it's in reference to how tall the Europeans are, so we think it comes from the Debray engraving where they're at the mouth of the St. John's and they're being introduced, reintroduced to the uh, the column that Ribot had left there. And the Tamuqua are much taller, so everyone thinks that uh, they must be about seven foot tall because it looks like they're about a foot or a foot and a half taller than the Europeans. So we think that's where that's come from. But really all biological, archaeological information that we have really shows they're much smaller in size. Dr. Ashley says that prior to the last decade or so, the archaeological record of Native American culture at European contact in North Florida was very limited. We really don't have a lot. Uh, there's been a couple things that found in the St. Augustine area, but what usually happens is what they find in St. Augustine, they spread it throughout the entire northeastern Florida area. So what you have in St. Augustine happened everywhere else. So we don't have a lot. So I think it's been the last decade or so in northeastern Florida, we've really gone after looking for specific information. I think we've found uh, several contact villages, and our goal now at the University of North Florida is to try to reconstruct the social landscape at contact. Where were Native American villages located? Can we in any way equate them with ones that are mentioned in historic documents? Um, What was the daily rhythm of life like at these places? In the last 10 years or so, some exciting discoveries have been made, shedding new light on the Mokama-speaking Tamuqua. Keith Ashley. I think one of the first things that may seem real simple to everyone is we finally have established what kind of pottery that they're making. That's really important for us to track the landscape. Once we know the pottery type they're making, then we'll know, okay, that's a marker for the 16th century. That could potentially be a Mokama site, and there's a lot of it that can possibly be a Mokama village. Um, You know, 30 years ago, they would have said it was St. John's pottery. 20 years ago, they would have said it was uh, Savannah pottery. And then today, we know that it's San Pedro pottery. And so now that we know that, when we find that, we know we have the right time period, we find large quantities of that, and we can really use that as kind of a building block. It gets us in the right place, and then from there we can open up larger units and uncover more. Keith Ashley and a team of archaeologists have been methodically excavating sites where Native Americans lived in North Florida at the time of European contact. What we've done is start out shovel testing. So every 25 meters we'll dig a shovel test, and we do this on a grid framework of a really broad area. We want to get the full extent, horizontal extent, of these communities. And a lot of times what we're finding out is where a community is, there were people living there prior. So we have stuff dating back 4,000 years, stuff dating back 1,000 years, but also stuff dating specifically to European contact. So we're trying to do all these shovel tests and then get the information from the different shovel tests and look at the different distributional patterns and see, okay, how big are these sites at contact? And what we're finding out based on our work on Big Talbot Island and based on work on Black Hammock Island, that these sites are much larger, that they're really spread out kind of linearly along the, uh, along the marshes because really that's what they're heavily explo- exploiting are aquatic marsh estuarine resources. And the distribution of their kind of house sites uh, shows that, reflects that. Ashley says the new archaeological evidence is contradicting some long-held beliefs about the Tamuqua that have been based on inaccurate historical sources. I think a couple things that really stand out is is agriculture. Uh, if you read the documents, they really um, portray them as really intensive and extensive agriculturalists. And what we're finding out is that corn comes really late to them. 
that our dates on corn suggest that they first start growing corn 1450, 1500 AD. So that's, you know, 50 years, 100 at the most prior to European contact. So they're just starting out doing it. So I think the documents kind of exaggerate the agricultural bounty of the area. They do really pick up on agriculture after mission times, but at contact, it's kind of an adjunct to basically a a, um, coastal way of life. Um, We also look at their villages, like I mentioned before, is that they seem to be uh, distributed over a broader area. They're not palisaded, meaning they they don't have a wooden wall around them. Uh, If you look at that uh, image, they're tightly clustered. Their agricultural fields are inside uh, the wall. It just doesn't look anything like that on the ground. So I think we're really moving away uh, from those. We, We start to realize how they're throwing away their garbage, which we think is a cultural dictate, and they're throwing them away in these little nice little piles over broad areas. Dr. Keith Ashley is research coordinator at the University of North Florida. He recently gave a talk at the Library of Florida History called From Engravings to Archaeology, Changing Views on the 16th Century Mokama Indians. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can find out about upcoming special events, look at historic photographs, check out our educational resources, and listen to archived editions of this program. While you're there, be sure to click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features Darcy McMahon, Exhibits Director at the Florida Museum of Natural History. Shortly after arriving here in the 16th century, the Spaniards began setting up a chain of Roman Catholic missions across North Florida. They also tried to establish missions in South Florida, but native Floridians had their own long-practiced religions and didn't exactly jump at the chance to change traditions. One such holdout was the Calusa of Southwest Florida. In 1568, priest Juan Rogel reported, 
They say that each man has three souls. One is the little pupil of the eye, another is the shadow that each one casts, and the last is the image of oneself that each one sees in a mirror or in a calm pool of water. And he added, When a man dies, his soul enters into some animal or fish, and when they kill such an animal, it enters into another lesser one, so that little by little it reaches the point of being reduced into nothing. Such historical accounts give us a glimpse into the depth and complexity of a culture that had prospered in Florida for millennia, only to be wiped out by disease, warfare, and slavery that accompanied European colonization. Darcy McMahon is Exhibits Director at the Florida Museum of Natural History. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in And then I watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Ooh, I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time I left my home Georgia Headed for the Frisco Bay Cause I've had Nothing to live for And look like Nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just Gonna sit on the dock Of the bay Watching the tide Roll away I'm sitting On the dock of the bay Wasting time. Saturday Night Bongo Party was a radio show in South Florida that was popular with both black and white audiences. Janie Gould talks with George Scott, who is filming a documentary on school integration in South Florida. Scott says that music was a unifying force in the community. School desegregation caused violent racial unrest in many communities in the late 1960s. In Martin County, though, the transition to full integration was fairly smooth. George Brock Scott grew up in Stewart during that era. Now he's an independent film producer and director who lives in Tennessee. He's been back in his hometown recently, recording interviews with others who lived through the era. He's producing a documentary for the Elliott Museum that he said will be a history of quiet heroes. In Martin County, we had community leaders, and the community itself wanted it to happen gently. This train was coming, and we knew it was going to come. So the people that were in power eased the transition. Scott wants to shed light on the roles played by the schools, community leaders, two churches, one black and one white, and sports. Then there was the all-important role of music. There's a local AM radio station, WSTU. Les Combs was the owner of the place. He allowed a community leader named Walter Oden to put on a radio program called the Saturday Night Bongo Party. And this was heard all over the county and even beyond. The top 40 music? No, this was rhythm and blues. This was music you didn't hear down here. You could listen to WQAM or some of the other big AM stations. Out of Miami, Rick Shaw. Yeah, even WABC out of New York came here at night. But this was our own. 
I say our own because I enjoyed the music too. I was fooling around on the radio and found it, and I said, what is this? And I heard Walter Oden say, it's the Saturday Night Bongo Party in living color and black and white. You can talk to kids of that era. Everybody knows about the Bongo Party. The black community in Indian Town, the black community in Jensen and Port Salerno, Hope Sound, and Stewart all listen to it, but so do the white community. We're in East Stewart now. You're getting ready to interview a man. Can we talk to you while you're cutting? I guess so, yeah. Philip Harvey owns the Harvey Plaza, a barber shop and beauty salon. George and Phil, did you know each other back in the early 70s? Phil? Unfortunately, no, we did not know each other. I knew his sister. She was in my class. We were the first class to integrate the Martin County school system. How'd you feel about it? I was excited. That was the best thing ever happened. To be able to interact and to be a part of Martin County. When that integration took place, you were a, a true Martin Countyan. So it brought the community together? Oh, yes, ma'am. Definitely. A lot closer together. This man is full of information. He knows everybody, and he knows everything. I'm not going to ask him about some of those things. But what I want to ask him today is, I just talked to uh, Leroy Washington. He's one of the first black policemen of Stewart. And I wanted to ask you, what did it mean to have these black leaders suddenly become leaders of our city as well? Washington became the deputy police chief, and we had a black mayor, Robert Hall. It brought you pride. You were represented. Do you remember the bongo parties? You can't forget that. That was Saturday night. Everybody was ready and waiting. Got your AM radio tuned on, ready, 7 o'clock, bam! And that brought blacks and whites together? Music, the universal language of the world. It brings everybody together. I mean, you're driving down the road, you're bouncing, you're on the beach, you're, you're, you're everywhere. You're at the job working, you're in the kitchen working. Everybody just got excited. Everybody was excited. Janie Gould spoke with George Scott. His film on school integration in South Florida will be part of the social history section of the Elliott Museum, operated by the Historical Society of Martin County. Look like nothing's gonna change. Everything still remains the same. I can't do what ten people tell me to do. So I guess I'll remain the same. Yes, sitting here resting my bones. And this loneliness won't leave me alone. This two thousand miles I roam. Just to make this dock my home. Now I'm just gonna sit at the dock of a bay Watching the tide roll away Ooh, I'm sitting on the dock of a bay Wasting time This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Zora Neale Hurston is best known for her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, which was published 75 years ago, but she also was an anthropologist who trained under the renowned Franz Boas. Bill Dudley has this look at Hurston's work gathering folk songs in Florida's turpentine camps in the 1930s. Wake up in the morning, hear the ding-dong rain. 
Look on the table for your fame, oh, fame. Recorded in 1939, the voice of Fred Lee Fox, 20-year-old turpentine worker. In the late 1930s, a team of WPA Federal Writers Project archivists traveled into Backwoods, Florida to record the voices of working people. These discs, preserved in the Library of Congress, document a time when black laborers lived in isolated camps around the state, building roads, logging, mining phosphate, and turpentine, considered one of the lowest and most difficult jobs of all for its poor living and working conditions. There's a sense that turpentine is a lost history a lost Florida history. Robert Casanello, assistant professor of history at the University of Central Florida, has spent the last few years studying the lives of African-American men and women in the camps. For primary sources, he's often turned to the words of a member of the WPA group, Harlem Renaissance author and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston. And uh, I'm going to sing a gambling song that I collected at Boston, Florida. That's the term time still there. And the men are playing a game called Georgia's Skin. Zorna Hurston came to the turpentine camps very late in their existence. In the 1930s, these turpentine camps, a lot of these black labor camps, began to dwindle and were lost. The mission was summed up as holding up a mirror to America. In our case, that meant holding up a mirror to Florida. Folklorist, author, and activist Stetson Kennedy, in a 1996 interview, talked of his experience as part of the WPA crew, visiting camps where some workers held seasonal jobs, while others toiled under a type of virtual peonage, and where violence was considered a way of life. I recall one testifying that uh, one of the woods riders held a pistol to his head while the other one whacked him over the head with a pine nut for not being ready to jump on the wagon. The conditions of turpentine work generally, well past the 30s actually, was some of the worst working conditions in the South. Vanderbilt University historian Tiffany Ruby Patterson. Her 2005 book, Zora Neale Hurston and a History of Southern Life, explores some of this hidden history. She believed that their lives did have a logic to it in spite of the harshness of it that the music that came out of those camps, the poetry of their language. She found the humor, she found codes of honor, she found principles, and she also found the realities of their life. Her reason for doing this was not only to document, but to validate working class culture as an aesthetic. Her point was that we ignore the working class, we ignore the poor, yet the poor and the working class have a literature and they have, you know, a way of storytelling that is unique unto themselves. And, you know, if we don't record this and preserve this and learn about this, this will be lost and we won't know. And so I think that is her great legacy in this, in this work. Zora used the songs, stories, and experiences she collected in the camps in several subsequent books and one of a series of plays that were only unearthed in the mid-1990s. We tend to focus on the end of the story and not the beginning of the story. And the beginning of the story, in terms of the beauty of African-American culture, is often unpleasant to look at. And yet it's there that artists drew their inspiration for the creations that are now praised, and I'm talking about the music especially, but also the language, the strength 
the resilience that these people had. I would argue, in fact, that that 1930s generation will become the backbone of the civil rights generation because they wanted more for their children. And oftentimes they came out of those camps. Historian Tiffany Ruby Patterson. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Make sure to join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.